First book of Kings. You know, we've been through first and second Samuel, and it, uh, it's been quite the blessing just to see the, how the Lord gave to Israel their first king. And it was something they desired. God didn't want that for them. He was very much content with it being a theocracy, that he would just speak to them and they would obey. And it seemed to be going pretty well. But as normally the case with humans, because we are sinful, and all of us have sinned and come short of the glory of God, unfortunately, but that is the truth, we always want something different. We're not content with being governed by God. And so God allows sometimes for us to get what we ask for. And there are repercussions, there are consequences for those things. And we saw that with Saul, the first king, and then finally through David and David's life, and, and just the ups and downs, the, the great valleys, the great heights that David went in his reign, and the many mistakes that he made. And if you're, uh, um, hopefully you're of the same heart as, as myself, I learned so much going through Samuel and just seeing the life of David and Saul and certainly Samuel learned a great deal about the nature of man and I also learned about God's character a lot more. And this evening as we begin Kings, it, it, it really continues with the beginning or the ending, excuse me, the book begins with the ending of David's life and it's really a continuation of Samuel. And in fact, first and second Kings were originally one book, simply called Kings in the Hebrew text. And it's also called, at one point, it was actually divided into four books, actually. They, they, you know, first Kings, second Kings, third King, and fourth Kings. And, and that was Samuel. First and second Samuel were originally named first and second Kings. And then third Kings was what we're called, what we're looking at as uh, first Kings tonight. And then 4th Kings, obviously, being 2nd. So that, that's just, uh, it's been divided over, over the years and really not a big deal. It's just a, a division. And in fact, in the Septuagint, if you remember, is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. It was written, uh, the Septuagint was written around the 2nd uh, and 3rd century B.C. They divided the book, uh, these 70 elders who transcribed uh, the scriptures, from the original language. Uh, it used to be, they divided the book of Kings in two because it was originally one. And from then, uh, going on into the fourth uh, or the fifth century B, um, AD, when Jerome uh, translated the scriptures into Latin, and we know that to be the Latin Vulgate. And really, from then onward, all of our English translations have just divided it into First and Second Kings. And so, um, as far as the author is concerned of this book, it is really somewhat of a mystery. Uh, many people think that Jeremiah wrote most of the book, but we know at the end of Jer at the end of um, Kings, we find that uh, Jeremiah gets sent off to Egypt, and. There's some speculation that he actually finished it. Um, somebody else may have finished it, but the general consensus is uh, may have been Jeremiah, could have been anonymous. It really doesn't matter. A prophet probably of some kind uh, wrote this 
and compiled all of this information of the kings into First and Second Kings. And it was written to the Jews of the captivity and the dispersion. Because this book, we believe, was written around 561 to 538 B.C. in Babylon. In Babylon. So as the children of Israel were in Babylon, a prophet, a holy man of God, decided to write the history of the kings. And he had some sources with him, evidently, to compile this information and put it into two books. And or it was originally one, like I said. But it was, it was for a purpose, to encourage those who are in captivity that, you know, God is a, he's serious about sin. And by writing these, this chronicle, if you will, of the kings, there's really, it's kind of depressing, actually. You would think that it would get better and better, but actually the truth of the matter is, in the, in the northern kingdom, after Solomon, which you know, we're going to be talking about the end of David's life and then Solomon's life and his reign, but right at the end of Solomon's reign, we know that the, the monarchy, which it had been up until that point, it splits now from uh, Jeroboam leading the ten tribes in the north and Rehoboam leading the southern two tribes, Judah and Benjamin, in the south. And from that moment onward, it just got worse and worse and worse. And all the kings in the northern kingdom were evil. Every single one of them. They followed after their father, Jeroboam, who introduced them to idolatry. And remember, he set up the golden calf in Bethel and also in Dan. And if you go to Israel with us next, not this March, but the following March, hopefully, Lord willing, you visit the, you visit the place in Dan where that altar was, where they had the golden calf. You, you're there. You actually see it. And so that's really uh, interesting to to do. But it never got any better. All the northern kings, all of them, were evil, following after their idolatrous practices of Jeroboam. And even in the southern kingdom, you'd think that the center being Jerusalem, that they would be much, much better. But there were only a handful of kings that were really good, and the rest of them were evil, just uh, just like their neighbors in the north. And so only a handful of kings that were really good. And they, we call them reformer kings, people like Josiah. And they were reformer kings, trying to get Israel back into shape again, trying to get them back to focus on their God again. And so this, uh, these two books really comprise about 400 years of history, from the time of Solomon all the way down till the captivity of the northern kingdom, which we will call Israel. And then the southern kingdom, which we'll call Judah. Because um, the, the northern kingdom was led into captivity first in 722 B.C. And you'd think that that would get the southern kingdom's attention, that God's serious about sin, but they didn't really engage. And God sent prophets to the northern kingdom and to the southern kingdom. All throughout kings here, we're going to see God also speaking to them and warning them through these prophets of impending judgment if they don't turn from their wickedness. And ultimately, we know that the northern kingdom did go into captivity. The Assyrians in 722 B.C., and then finally, not getting the hint, not obeying the southern two tribes, Judah and Benjamin, they get led into captivity 170, 150 years or so later by Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. And they would remain in Babylon for 70 years. 
And so what we're looking at tonight is a history of those kings beginning at the end of David's life through Solomon's kingdom, through Jeroboam and Rehoboam, and then just the carnage of everything after that. And all along, God is trying to, you know, knocking on the door of their hearts and trying to get them to turn from their wickedness. But isn't it kind of disturbing? You know, you, you know I think one, one thing you could say about this, these two books is, if you were to sum it up, you could sum it up in different ways, but one verse that comes to my mind is, for the wages of sin is death. <laughs> for the wages of sin is death. Because I never really learned. And another thing that it reminds me of is a quote, and I think it was George Santayana, I believe. He said, what man has learned from history is that man has learned nothing from history. And they don't. We don't learn from history. We, we're, we, have, very, we have amnesia. You, you, even in our country, we, we forget a couple of years where everything's going well, and we've forgotten the pain of the past. And it's just the way we are. And so, let's go ahead and read it. We're going to look at chapter 1 this, uh, this evening, but notice what it says. It says, now King David, so Samuel, 2 Samuel ended with David taking a census, remember, and God judging the nation for it and allowing 70,000 men of Judah to be killed. And so now David is toward the end of his life. And he only lives 70 years, okay? 70 is not really that big of a deal today. Um, but back then, they didn't have all of the, the things that we have today to kind of pump us up and, 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 and get us going again. And David was aged. And probably with the years of warfare, certainly the sin in his life that he, and, and the wars within his own family, the difficulty in his reign, um, all of those things put lines on your face. <laughs> have you ever noticed somebody like that? You, you know, somebody who's lived a life of, uh, and, and I'm not saying that David was, the, he, you know, he had his moments, of course, but he was also a great man, there's no doubt. But there's something about a person who has given themselves over to sin in a sinful lifestyle. They age much quicker than somebody who is living a pure life. You know, sometimes you look at somebody and they're only 50 years old or 60 years old and they look much, much older than they really are. It's be, and a lot of times, a lot of times, sometimes, it's because they've lived a hard life. You know, they've just lived a sinful life. They've been through the ringer. They spent a lot of nights waking up at night, you know, a lot, you know, not being able to sleep. They've spent a lot of times worrying. They've spent a lot of times waking up in somebody else's bedroom. You know, because of their lifestyle. And, and it just, it does. It, it, it takes a toll on the body when you live a life of sin. I'm not saying that David was that man because he was a forgiven man. God had done great things. But, um, but that can be true as well, you know, when we get older. But praise God, you know, just to live a life of purity is such a wonderful thing. Because as you get older, people say, how old are you? And you could say, well, I'm 60. And they're like... Really? You look like you're 45. And then you can say, well, it's the, um, you know, the uh, oil of Olay that I put on. It can help you look younger, too. You know. uh, no, but it's, it's the life walking in the spirit. You know? And you, you sleep well. You've got a healthy heart and a mind. But anyway, let's read this. Because it starts off with David, really, in, on his, 
at very age, pretty much bedridden. It says, now King David was old, advanced in years, and they put covers on him, but he could not get warm. And therefore his servants said to him, let a young woman, a virgin, be sought out for our Lord the king, and let her stand before the king, and let her care for him, and let her lie in your bosom, that the Lord our king may be warm. And so they sought a lovely young woman throughout all the territory of Israel and found Abishag the Shunammite and brought her to the king. And the young woman was very lovely. You know, it mentioned that, by the way, twice so far. Do you notice that? In verse 2, or verse, uh, verse two and verse 3, she was very lovely. A very lovely young woman <laughs> throughout all the territory. And they found her. And then finally in verse 4, the young woman was very lovely and she cared for the king and she served him. But the king did not know her. That's just the Bible's way of saying he didn't have physical intimacy with her. David at this point was an old man and he, you know, it was just a different stage in life. But for some reason he just couldn't keep his body temperature you know, warm. And so, and, and this kind of thing sounds a little foreign to us, but this was a medical custom of the day, is for this kind of thing to happen. In fact, Josephus, a Jewish historian, said uh, that this was a therapeutic practice which continued on even into the Middle Ages for a king to have a young virgin, you know, an old man to kind of care for him, you know, get his, his pills and, you know, and I mean, he didn't have pills back then, but, you know, to do those things and just care for him, you know, take care of him. And then at night when he's cold, she would just kind of bundle up with him. Uh, but, but there was no intimacy whatsoever. And I think by now David would have learned a lesson anyway. He had, but it was a custom back at this time. And so notice, then Adonijah, the son of Haggith, exalted himself, saying, I will be king. You might want to underline exalted himself and underline I will be king. Because he prepared for himself chariots and horsemen and 50 men to run before him. Adonijah, who is this guy, Adonijah? Uh, you might want to put in the margin of your Bible right there by his name, Second Samuel chapter 3. Verses 1 through 5. 2 Samuel chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. Let me just read it to you for time's sake, because we want to find out who this son of David is. In 2 Samuel 3, it says, Now there was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David, but David waxed stronger and stronger, and the house of Saul waxed weaker and weaker. And then in verse 2, it says, And unto David were born sons in Hebron. And his firstborn was Amnon. Amnon. And we, we looked at him. Remember, he was the firstborn son who had raped um, his half-sister, Tamar. Remember? And actually, this half-sister, Tamar, was actually Absalom's real sister. Because these, these young men of David's were each born from a different mother. But Tamar and uh, Absalom were born from the same mother. So when Amnon raped her, ultimately Absalom killed uh, Amnon. And so David's now missing another son. And then it goes on and it says, uh, he was from, uh, Amnon was from Ahinoam the Jezreelitess. That was the woman's name. And his second, his second son was Chiliab or Daniel of Abigail, the wife of Nabal, the Carmelite. Not much is, not much is known of him. They, many believe he died at a very early age. So he wasn't a contender in this whole thing. But notice 
that the third son, Absalom, the son of Maacah, the daughter of Talmai, king of Jeshur, he was the third son, and we've already looked at him because he assumed that he would be king, and he tried to overthrow his father with a coup, and ultimately Joab, remember David's nephew, because David had a sister, a half-sister, named Zeruiah, and Zeruiah had uh, three sons. Shimei, uh, I think it was uh, Shimei, Abishai, and Joab. I, I, um, actually, I got that wrong, but he, she had three sons anyway. And, and Joab was one of them, and Joab became the general of David's army, but Joab was the one who ultimately killed Absalom. And so now we have this fourth son, and it says, and the fourth son of, uh, of David was Adonijah, the son of Haggith, and um, and, and the fifth, Shephatiah, the son of Abital, and the sixth, Ithream, by Eglah, David's wife. These were born to David in Hebron. But now he is the fourth son, and now that Absalom is dead, now that David is getting much older, uh, Adonijah is thinking to himself, well, I'm the next in line. It's only natural for me to be king once my father's died, dead. And he's just looking at his watch, waiting for his dad to kick the bucket so he can hop on the throne, Right? But notice what it says about this young man. It says that he exalted himself and he said, I will be king. And he prepared for himself chariots and horsemen and 50 men to run before him. And and doing this kind of thing basically is showing to everyone around that I am an important person and this is what kings would do. And now he is showing himself, showing himself to be king. David did not... There's nothing ever spoken that he was going to be the heir to the throne. Because we know that David had six sons when he was in Hebron. But it also says that when, and he only ruled Hebron for seven years. But when he moved to Jerusalem, it says that he had more sons and daughters. And of course, or sons anyway, and daughters. But he had more sons and certainly Solomon was one of those. And while it is true that Adonijah seemed to be the heir apparent to the throne, God had a different plan, and we'll look more at this when we get to verse 13 later on in the chapter, but does this kind of heart, does this kind of attitude sound familiar to you? I will be king. (laughs) He exalted himself. I will be king. Who does that sound like to you? Well, yeah, it could, maybe, but you know who it really sounds like is Satan. You remember what it said in Isaiah 14? You might want to write that in your margin of your Bible. Isaiah 14, verse 12. Remember what um, Isaiah, God was speaking through Isaiah and speaking to the power behind the throne of of the king of, of Babylon. And he says, For you have said in your heart, oh, excuse me, let me start at verse 12. How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? So God is speaking to the the power behind this king. And it wasn't the king himself. He was addressing the power behind his throne. Because every throne has a power behind it. It's either evil or it's of God. And Babylon's uh, didn't start off that way. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar got saved, I believe, later on in his, uh, right before his, uh, you know, at the end of his career. But He didn't start off so well. But notice what God is is addressing the power behind his throne. He says, How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How art thou cut down to the ground, which did weaken the nations? Sorry, I got this in the King James, so I apologize for that. For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. 
And, and notice, I will ascend into heaven. That's the first one. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. And then I will be like the most high. And God replies to him, yet you shall be brought low down to hell to the sides of the pits. So here's a very proud angel. Lucifer, we know, is the, the shining one the light bearer. And this same heart is in the, the same attitude is in the heart of Adonijah who boasted of himself, exalted himself. And notice he prepared the chariots and the horsemen and 50 men to run before him. We've seen this before with his brother, his younger brother, Absalom. It tells us in Samuel, 2 Samuel 15. Speaking of Absalom, it says, After this it happened that Absalom provided himself with chariots and horses and 50 men to run before him. So really nothing new here. What um, Adonijah saw his brother do, he decides to do himself. After all, he got really close to overthrowing his father's kingdom. And now Adonijah's thinking, you know, isn't it sad? (laughs) A couple things are sad about this whole thing as we read it. Number one, David didn't tell Everybody didn't know who the heir apparent was. There was always a mystery. And, and there were a few people, I believe, that knew it, knew it. And it was David and Bathsheba at the very least. But David waited until the very end of his life. I mean, he could have had a heart attack. He could have had a seizure. He could have had anything. And his kingdom would have been in a complete shambles. And there would have been a great power fight between his remaining sons. You know, why did he wait that long? You know, David was a wonderful man, but there's some things about David, and, and, and not to be too critical of him, but, you know, it, it is true that he, he was kind of, uh, he didn't hold his sons accountable. He wasn't very, especially after the issue with Bathsheba and Uriah, there just seems to be like he kind of, at times, just kind of checked out. And, and maybe in his old age now, he's, his mind is starting to lose it a little bit. I don't really know. But he didn't, he didn't communicate these things. And it's so important to communicate. You know, today we've got all these tools to communicate. I mean, David didn't have an iPhone. You know, he couldn't be sitting on his bed, you know, and Abishag is rubbing his feet and getting a circulation going, you know, and he's texting his son, hey, um... Adonijah, I know that I haven't spoken to you in a while, but I wanted to let you know that I, I really Solomon is really going to be my successor. I know you're fourth in line, and you know, um, and, and it, it would seem right that you're the next king, but it's really Solomon. The Lord spoke to me, and I haven't told you that, but I'm telling you now. Send smiley face, right? But he didn't, <laughs> and it created a problem. And we're going to see that. We're going to see that in this chapter. So notice. Verse 6, and his father had not rebuked him at any time, saying, why have you done so? And he was also a very good-looking man, this Adonijah, good-looking man. And his mother had borne him after Absalom. Um, Absalom had a different mother than him, so um, it, it looks like they had the same mother, but that's not really what it means there. It just means that Adonijah's mother had borne him after Absalom was born from a different mom. But notice that David, he didn't rebuke him at all. And and maybe he didn't know. You know, this lack of fatherly intervention and accountability in his family was one of David's regrettable downfalls. You know, and David at this point, he knew 
He knew what God had told him back during the time when the Lord spoke to him about God building David a house and that his son would build God a house. Remember that? We'll look at that tonight. God, you know, David had it in his heart to build a house for God and, and God spoke to him and says, you know what, David, you're a man who's, you got blood on your hands. You can't build me a temple, but your son is going to build me a temple. And what Second Samuel 7 doesn't tell us that Chronicles does, and we'll look at this later, is that God had, sp- God had spoken more to David about even the son's name. Your son, Solomon, is going to be the one. Not any son. Any, and, and, and we'll get there. I'm getting ahead of myself. So it's going to be really interesting. But David had, apparently had only told a few people about this. And perhaps only he and Bathsheba knew about it as far as we know. But when Adonijah sensed that his father's passing was near, he presumed upon the throne. And, no one, and when no one restrained him or rebuked him, including his own father, because he probably didn't know uh, David, uh, he believed that he would be the heir. But he was wrong. David should have made that clear years ago, but for some reason, again, he didn't. And not only was Adonijah young, but he was also like Absalom, a good-looking guy. And unfortunately, these are things that most people can't resist. And even though he walked in rebellion, just like Absalom, he was a good-looking guy. And people flock around good-looking people. It doesn't matter whether you can speak at all. You might not even have a brain. But if, you got like, if you're really good-looking and you can dress yourself and you can stand in front of and you got this you know, photogenic kind of awesome, you know, wow, you know, they're just so beautiful and the hair and you know, everything... And people just lose it. They just forget about, you know, is this person qualified to, like, tie their shoes? <laughs> Can they add? You know, what's, what's five times five? Do you know the answer? But Adonijah was just a handsome guy. Handsome guy. That doesn't mean that every beautiful person isn't smart. Because my wife's very smart. She's awfully cute. I, I keep, um, so she's over there. Um, Shriveling up into a ball. Sorry, honey. Anyway, verse 7. It says, Then he conferred with Joab, this Adonijah. Now, Joab was David's general and also David's nephew. And he was very loyal to David up to a certain point. He wasn't a very obedient man, Joab. He wasn't very obedient. And he certainly was a bloodthirsty man. So now Adonijah, after the thing with Absalom, Adonijah wins the heart of Joab now. And no doubt, Joab and David, their, their relationship, especially as David's getting older, is getting very tenuous. Because you remember one of, the, the, one of the things that we did last read, even though we don't know chronologically where it occurred, but David wanted to go number the people. And, and Joab's like, why do you want to do that? There's only certain reasons we do that, but clearly this is not one of them. What's your motivation, David? And it's kind of funny that Joab would have an objection because he was such a, a lawless man at times. Um, but anyway, that created a real friction between he and David. So now uh, Adonijah solicits Joab and with him Abiathar the priest. And notice, and they followed and they helped Adonijah. So Joab begins now to show his true colors, finally fed up with David, finally sees this young, good-looking upstart now of David's and thinking to himself, you know what, I'm going to join this man and I'm going to continue my, my own life and what I want to do. Um, but Joab, if you remember, he was not confederate with Absalom, but he was with Adonijah. 
And again, we're not sure of what Joab knew at this point concerning David's plans about who would succeed David on his throne. But Joab's loyalty now is completely slipping. Joab knew that he was growing out of favor with David. So David didn't sanction Joab's murders in his life, the things that he did that were just completely wrong. And certainly they... They're, they're, like I said, their relationship was very tenuous. And isn't it true? Uh, Jesus said this in Matthew chapter 10. He says, Do not think that I have come to bring peace on the earth. <laughs> you know, he is the Prince of Peace. And we often think, well, he's come to bring peace on the earth. Well, he says, Do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and a man's enemies will be those of his own household. What does that mean? It means that when you come to Christ, when one one party is walking with God and another isn't, there's going to be natural enmity between the two of them. And it happens in families all the time. Where one gets saved and they don't understand what has happened to you. All of a sudden you're going to church. All of a sudden you want to read the Bible. And now you're, you, you, you stop smoking dope and you stop drinking and you stop shooting heroin. And you actually sold your Camaro. Now you got like a, 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 ga, you know, a, a gas-efficient car. What's wrong with you, man? Right? <laughs> and the families and just... This kind of headbutting starts to happen. And, and God help you if your family belongs to a religion where Christianity is an enemy, like in Islam. Talk about enemies. Young women coming to Christ and their, their fathers beating them up and throwing them out of the house. Happens all the time in the Middle East. But your enemies, and here David and Joab were becoming an enemy, and now they are enemies But notice verse 8 back in our text. But Zadok, the priest, Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, Nathan, the prophet, Shimei, Rei, and the mighty men who belonged to David were not with Adonijah. So now the line again is being drawn in the sand. Didn't we see this with Absalom? And now we're seeing it again with Adonijah. And I bet David is just sitting there on his bed while this young lady is rubbing his feet and he's thinking, you know what? I just can't wait to go home. (laughs) I just can't wait to be done with all this. When is this going to stop? When is it going to stop? And those men who were really with David, they remain loyal to him. And notice Shimei. And now it's possible that this is a different Shimei, but it may be the Shimei. If you remember back in 2 Samuel 16, when David was leaving Jerusalem and Absalom was overthrowing him, so David was in exile. And as he's leaving, leaving Jerusalem and going out to the... um, to the Mount of Olives and beyond, to Baharim, he comes across this man, Shimei, who starts throwing rocks and sand at him and and cursing him, right? And this man, it could be that this man is the one that is with David now because David promised not to kill him when David finally came back into Jerusalem after Absalom had died. He came back to Jerusalem and Shimei basically became humble pie before him and David made a vow that he wouldn't kill him. What a gracious man. And maybe that gratitude won a friend. We're going to find out that uh, some interesting things about Shimei later. But, but notice that David, um, you know, he, he has his loyal people with him. And notice in verse 9, And Adonijah, now he's sacrificing sheep and oxen and fattened cattle by the stone of Zoheleth, 
which is by Enrogel. And this place, Enrogel, is, if you were to look at a map of, of, of the temple, like here would be the Temple Mount, and then right to the south of it would be Zion, or the city of David. Well, just a little bit further south of that, in the Hinnom Valley, between the Kidron Valley, uh, actually right here, and then the Hinnom Valley going underneath, right on the outskirts of that is a spring. It's called Enrogel. And so this is where... Um, uh, Adonijah and his friends and those who are loyal to him are having a big party. Now it says that he sacrificed sheep and oxen and fattened cattle, but it wasn't a sacrifice to God. It was to party hardy because now he is, they're having a big meal is basically what's happening. He's spoiling these guys and he wants them to stay with him. And so um, verse 10, but he did not invite, notice, Nathan the prophet. He didn't invite Benaiah, the mighty men, or Solomon, his brother. And he certainly didn't invite David because David was kind of bedridden. So all of a sudden you can see again the lines drawn in the sand. And so Adonijah's hoarding this group of guys and feeding them well and getting ready to you know, uh, march through the streets like he's the king. But David wasn't paying attention. David... Uh, wasn't aware of this. And had he done things in a timely fashion, maybe things would be different, but he didn't. And now Adonijah is taking matters into his own hands. And so Nathan, verse 11, spoke to Bathsheba, the mother of Solomon, saying, Have you not heard that Adonijah, the son of Haggith, has become king, and David, our Lord, does not know it? So remember, David was a, uh, I'm sorry, Nathan was a faithful man. The, the Lord had spoken through Nathan to David on at least two occasions. And the first one was the Davidic covenant where God says, you know, after your seed, after you have gone to sleep with your fathers, in other words, af after you die, your seed after you, your son is going to bear, uh, you know, he's going to make me a house. And his, through his seed, in other words, David through him and all the kings below him, he is going to, you're going to have an everlasting kingdom. And ultimately it, it spoke to even Jesus Christ being the seed, you know, after uh, David that would be born. Because we know that uh, Jesus came from the line of Judah, from the line of David, actually. And then we also know that Nathan was the one who spoke David and busted him when after he had slept with Bathsheba and killed her husband to cover up his affair and her pregnancy... That Nathan, God sends him to basically bust David in 2 Samuel chapter 12, saying, you're the man. You're the man, David. You're the one who did this. And so, David and Nathan have a wonderful relationship, even though David, I'm certain when he sees Nathan coming, he's a little bit like, is this good news? <laughs> I hope this is good news. So verse 12, he says, Come, and this is Nathan speaking to Bathsheba, Come, please let me now give you advice that you may save your own life and the life of your own son. See, if Adonijah became king, then Bathsheba and Solomon's lives would have been in jeopardy because any king in the Middle East, normal, typically what they did is when they came into power, they vanquished their enemies or anybody, any rival to the throne. That was just the way things were done. But notice what it says in, in verse 13 now. He says, he says to, Nathan says to Bathsheba, Now go immediately to the king David and say to him, Did you not, my lord, O king, swear to your maidservant, saying, Assuredly, your son Solomon shall reign after me, 
and he shall sit on my throne? Why then has Adonijah become king? Now, as you read that, as I did, have, did you scratch your head and think, well, when did that happen? We didn't read it in 2 Samuel, did we? In fact, let me read to you the Davidic covenant that God gave to Nathan to give to David. And let me know if you hear this phrase where Bathsheba is saying, don't you remember when you said that, that Solomon would be the heir to the throne and that he would, you know, it's nowhere, it's not written prior to this. So it may be a little bit of a surprise to you. But it does appear some other places in Chronicles. So let me read to you what that, that Davidic covenant was in 2 Samuel 7, beginning in verse 12. Because God spoke to David through Nathan. He says, when your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers when you die, I will set up your seed after you who will come from your body. And I will establish his kingdom. Now, I want you to think about something as God is saying this to him. Because the chronology of this thing really helps to understand what's going on here. Because David had already had those six sons, remember? We read about that in 2 Samuel chapter 3, right? That he had when he was in Hebron. He had six sons, Adonijah, Absalom, and all you know, the other four. But now, in chapter 7, God is saying to him, When your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seat after you, who will come from your own body. Who will come, not who has already come from your body. Do you see it? Does that make sense? In other words, the son that you're going to get is not one that's already alive. He's going to come, he will come from your own body. He hasn't yet, but he will. And he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Obviously speaking of the kingdom of even Jesus Christ. And I will be his father, and he will be my son. And now in the, in, the, in the very current, he's certainly speaking of Solomon. In the future, prophetically, he's also speaking of Jesus. But notice, if he commits iniquity, speaking of Solomon, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the blows of the sons of men. But my mercy shall not depart from him as I took it from Saul when I removed from him from before you. And your house and your kingdom, notice, shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever. This is an everlasting covenant. If you don't know 2 Samuel 7, make an asterisk by it. Remember that chapter because that is God's promise to David that not only would Solomon, and he doesn't mention him by name, by the way, at least in this text, in Samuel, it doesn't mention it. But now, um, when we go to Chronicles, you might want to put in the footnote of your Bible, 1 Chronicles 22, verses 6 through 10. 1 Chronicles 22, 6-10, because it's speaking of this time right before David would pass away and his son. So it says that, in verse 6 it says, David called for his son Solomon, and, and listen to what he said to him. This is very important. And he charged him to build a house for the Lord God of Israel. And David said to Solomon, here's David's words. He said, my son, as for me, it was in my mind to build a house to the name of the Lord my God. But the word of the Lord came to me saying, you have shed much blood and have made 
uh, great wars, you shall not build me a house for my name because you have shed much blood on the earth in my sight. Behold, a son will be born to you who shall be a man of rest and I will give him rest from all his enemies all around. His name shall be Solomon. <laughs> this is the first time we've heard this. Now, what that means is, is that when God spoke to David back in 2 Samuel 7, it only recorded a portion of what was a portion of the, the, the total picture. Does that make sense? This detail was left out. And you don't hear about it until you get to here. And then turn, also make a note, First uh, Chronicles chapter 28, verse 1 through 7. Let me read that to you. Because now David, after he has told this privately to his son, Solomon. He told him privately there in, in chapter 20, uh, 22. Now um, he, he, he's going to be anointed king a second time. And we'll, we'll, we'll read about the first time here shortly. But now, David, it's a big, big deal. Now the whole country's together. All the leaders are together. And now David says in First Chronicles 28, verse 1, he says, Now David assembled at Jerusalem all the elders of Israel, the officers of the tribes, the captains, the divisions who served the king, and captains over thousands, captains over hundreds, etc., etc. And then David, verse 2, rose to his feet and he said, Hear me, my brethren and my people. I had it in my heart. And he's rehearsing exactly what he told to Solomon, but now he tells it to the whole country. He goes, I had it in my heart to build a house of rest for the ark of the covenant of the Lord and for the footstool of our God and had made preparations to build it. But God said to me, you shall not build a house for me. Because you have been a man of war and have shed blood. However, the Lord God of Israel chose me above all the house of my father to be king over Israel forever. For he has chosen Judah to be the ruler and of the house of Judah, the house of my father. And among the sons of my father, he was pleased with me to make me king over Israel and all my sons. For the Lord has given me many sons. He has chosen my son Solomon to sit on the throne of the kingdom of the Lord of Israel and now he said to me, it is your son Solomon who shall build me a house in my courts, for I have chosen him to be my son, and I will be his father. Moreover, I will establish his kingdom forever, if he's steadfast to observe my commandments and my judgments as it is this day. And it makes you wonder, why is it now that David is telling everybody? He could have told them a, long, you know, a while back. Like after Absalom had died and, and maybe after um, you know, he knew and God spoke to him, wouldn't that be a good time? But maybe David, I don't, I don't want to get into his head. I don't know why he didn't do it. But it created problems because now nobody knows until at the very end of this whole thing, as we're reading now, in the beginning they didn't know that. So Adonijah naturally assumes, well, I'm the heir apparent. And so he makes himself a king and tries to succeed his father. So back in our text, verse 14, it says, Then while you are still talking there with the king, and, and again, uh, Nathan now is, remember, he's talking to Bathsheba because he's trying to encourage he's trying to encourage Bathsheba to go speak to the king and remind him of these words 
Remember Solomon? <laughs> Remember the promise that you made, David? So then Nathan says, while you are still talking with the king, I also will come in after you and I will confirm your words. So Bathsheba, verse 15, went into the chamber of the king. Now the king was very old and Abishag, the Shunammite, was serving the king. And Bathsheba bowed and did homage to the king. And then the king said to her, what is your wish? And then she said to him, my lord, you swore by the Lord your God to your maidservant saying, Assuredly, Solomon, your son, shall reign after me, and he shall sit on my throne. So now look, Adonijah has become king, and now, my lord the king, you do not know about it. He didn't know about it. He was bedridden. His son is doing this, and he's, he doesn't know about it. And he has sacrificed oxen and fattened cattle and sheep in abundance, she tells him, and has also invited all the sons of the king, Abiathar the priest and Joab the commander of the army, but Solomon your servant he has not invited. And as for you, my lord, O king, the eyes of all Israel are on you that you should tell them who will sit on the throne of my lord the king after him. In other words, <laughs> David, remember the promise? Because you've said nothing and you're doing nothing, it's happening. Something else is happening that God didn't want to happen. She said that otherwise it will happen when my lord the king rests with his fathers that I and my son Solomon will be counted as offenders. We're going to be hunted. And she, he made this promise to her, but only she and he evidently knew about it. Nobody else did. Otherwise Adonijah might not have wasted his time. And just then, while she was talking with the king, Nathan the prophet also came in. And so they told the king, saying, Here is Nathan the prophet. And when he came in before the king, he bowed down before the king with his face to the ground. And Nathan said, My lord, O king, have you said, have you said Adonijah shall reign after me, and he shall sit on my throne? Notice that Nathan didn't come in and accuse the king of losing his mind. He, just, he wanted to know the answer, because as his royal confidant, David would naturally share that information with him. And so he's kind of befuddled his, as well. He's like, have you said that Adonijah shall reign after you and that he shall sit on your throne? For he has gone down today and he's sacrificed oxen and fattened cattle and, and sheep in abundance and has invited all the king's sons and the commanders of the army and Abiathar the priest. And look, they're eating and drinking before him and they say, long live King Adonijah. But he has not invited me, <laughs> me, your servant. Why didn't Adonijah invite Nathan? Why didn't he invite Solomon? Why didn't he invite Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada? Why didn't he invite Zadok the priest? Well, because Adonijah knew that those were men loyal to his father. And so again, the line is drawn in the sand. Now Nathan is saying, he hasn't invited any of us. Do, do you understand what's happening here, David? That's basically what he's doing in a very kind way. He's not accusing the king. He's just trying to get an answer. Did you want him to rule? Are we missing something? Is that what the king said? You know, trying to draw him out. But he has not invited me, me your servant, nor Zadok, nor Benaiah of Jehoiada, nor of your servant Solomon. He has, he ha has this thing been done to, uh, by my lord the king, and, and have you not told your servant? 
who should sit on the throne of my Lord, the king after him? And so David answered and he said, call Bathsheba back in. As the custom was, when a man came in, the mother, the queen mother would leave and then Nathan would speak, but now he brings her back into the room now. And King David answered and said, call Bathsheba to me. And so she came into the king's presence and stood before the king. And the king took an oath and said, as the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life from every distress, just as I swore to you by the Lord God of Israel, saying, Assuredly, Solomon, your son, shall be king after me, and he shall sit on my throne in my place, so I certainly will do this day. And so David here, he admits that he did not have this conversation, or excuse me, he admitted by saying this in front of Nathan, and and let the matter... uh, Every matter be established between two witnesses, right? So Nathan is here and Bathsheba is here, establishing this fact of what was said. So David now admits that he did have this conversation with Bathsheba in prior years at some point in the past, and now he's going to see that it gets done. And had he done it earlier, he could have avoided. And see, I I think there's something here for all of us, you know. Um, Why wait when you've got things that you need to say, things that you need to do, Get them done. Don't wait, especially as you get older. You know, don't assume that you got all this time in the world. You know, there's so many people who have, you know, um, you know, wills and things like this, and maybe they've got four or five kids, and maybe the dad is really wealthy, and the dad dies unexpectedly. You know, in a golfing accident, maybe he wrecked his golf cart in Hawaii, and it went over the edge, and he hit his head on a, on a volcanic rock, and he died. Yes, I'm sorry, I had to fill that in unexpectedly he dies. Now he's got this fortune and all the kids, because he didn't get a will together, now all the kids are fighting over it. Now they hate each other. Of course, they probably will hate each other anyway. Uh, Not always, but... uh, (laughs) So, but do things while you can. Get things in order while you can. David didn't do this until the very last and it was a really pitiful thing because it created something that didn't need to have happened. And it was just carelessness, I believe. So verse 31. Then Bathsheba bowed her face to the earth and and paid homage to the king and said, Let my lord the king live forever. And the king David said to her, Call me Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet and Benaiah the son of Jehoiada. And so they came before the king. And the king also said to them, Take with you the servants of your lord and have Solomon my son ride on my own mule. Kings would ride on mules and and that's just what they did. And, And take him down to Gihon. Gihon Spring is just to the south of David's palace on the wall on the eastern side of the city of Zion there. And we, we actually visit this place. And you can actually go and see where Solomon was anointed king. There's a place right there in Israel for it, in the Gihon Spring, where that, that's where it happened. That's where they anointed their kings. And so there let, um, let Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet anoint him king over Israel here there at Gihon and blow the horn and say, Long live Solomon, and then you shall come up after him, and he shall come and sit on my throne, and he shall be king in my place. For I have appointed him to be ruler over Israel and Judah. And so Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, answered the king and said, Amen. <laughs> May the Lord God of my Lord the king say so too. And as the Lord has been with my Lord the king, even so may he be with Solomon and make his throne greater than the throne of my 
of my Lord King David. And so Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, Benaiah the son of Jehoiada, the Cherethites and the Perethites, Pelethites, these were the bodyguards basically of David the king. They all went down and had Solomon ride on King David's mule and they took him to Gihon, which is this spring right there on the side of the wall in a really interesting place. And then Zadok, the priest, took a horn of oil from the tabernacle and anointed Solomon, and they blew the horn, and all the people said, Long live King Solomon. Now remember, as they're doing this, they're having a party about a half a mile down the road. Literally, it's about a half a mile from where Enrogal is from the Gihon Spring. So a half a mile away, Adonijah and his guys are eating like kings and having a party because he's thinking he's going to be king. And now David finally wakes up. He's like, we're going to anoint him today and he's going to sit on my throne today. (laughs) So they take him down there and there's a lot of rejoicing. All the people, except for those who are having the party, they're rejoicing, but now they hear something. Watch what happens. So all the people, verse 40, went up after him, and the people played with flutes and rejoiced with great joy, so that the earth seemed to split with their sound. And now Adonijah and all the guests who were with him, about a half a mile away, heard it as they were finished eating. If that, that'll give you a stomach upset to hear, and wait, wait, wait till he gets a load of what's going to happen here. <laughs> so Adonijah and all the guests who were with him as they finished eating, and when Jacob, or excuse me, when Joab, who was in the company of Adonijah, heard the sound of the horn, he said, why is the city in such a noisy uproar? And while he was still speaking, there came Jonathan, the son of Abiathar the priest, and Adonijah said to him, come in, for you are a prominent man, and bring good news. And then Jonathan answered and said to Adonijah, no. It's not good news for you, Adonijah. Our Lord King David has made Solomon king. Think about how, how much fear must be just like a lightning bolt. Here they are just eating, they're eat, having, indulging in the flesh and partying, and they're drinking wine, and, and they hear this noise. A young man comes in and says, uh, I wouldn't put your hat on, I wouldn't put your crown on too quick there, bud. Because David just anointed Solomon to be king. And can you imagine the fear in Adonijah's heart? So the king has sent with him Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, Benaiah the son of Jehoiada, the Cherethites and the Pelethites, and they have made him ride on the king's mule. So it is official as official can get. He's got his prophet, he's got his priest, and he's got a men of the, the commander of the army and the Cherethites and the Pelethites. They're all going down. They've made this official at Gihon Spring. So Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet have anointed him king at Gihon, and they have gone up from there rejoicing so that the city is in an uproar. This is the noise that you heard. And also Solomon sits on the throne of the kingdom as we speak. <laughs> And moreover, the king's servants have gone to bless our Lord King David, saying, May God make the name of Solomon better than your name, and may he make his throne greater than your throne. And then the king bowed himself on the bed. And also the king said this, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, who has given one to sit on my throne this day, while my eyes see it. And then now the the reality of this news hits Adonijah and all of his guests who are complicit with him. So all the guests who were with Adonijah, verse 49, were afraid. And they arose and each went his way. (laughs) Can you see that? I mean, they're having a party and now everyone's just kind of like, 
thanks for the meal, but you know, it's getting really late, and uh, I gotta go. Um, I gotta go. Um, uh, I gotta go feed my fish back in my fish. I'll see you later. I gotta go. And everyone just like mice are scurrying away from him. They don't even want to be guilty by association now because of his treachery and his assumption. The party's over, and Adonijah is in deep trouble. So nobody wants to be around him now. Now Adonijah was afraid of Solomon, verse 50, and so he arose and he went and he took hold of the horns of the altar. Solomon's temple, remember, had not been built yet, and so the altar at this time was still, uh, was still in the tabernacle, which Moses had built several hundred years prior to this, several hundred years. And this tabernacle was located at the high place in Gabeon, believe it or not. It was about seven miles northwest of Jerusalem. Now, you remember, David brought the Ark of the Covenant, which was just one piece of furniture in that tabernacle. He brought the Ark of the Covenant into the city of Zion, and he built another tabernacle for it. But the other elements of the tabernacle are still up in Gabeon, and they wouldn't be, um, and, and Solomon is going to create all new stuff. You know, God is going to give David the blueprint for all of these things. So um, let's see here. So it was told Solomon, saying, Adonijah is afraid of King Solomon, for look, he has taken hold of the horns of the altar. And people would do this if they are guilty of something and taking hold of the horns of the altar where they would do sacrifice. That was basically, you're basically saying, I want mercy because if God has been merciful you know, to all of us by allowing an animal to be sacrificed, then have mercy on me too, right? And that was his, um, that's why he clung to the altar. And I won't spoil it. You guys probably know, if you read the Bible, you already know what's going to happen, but we'll look at that next week. But it was told um, Solomon that, indeed, Adonijah is afraid of you, King Solomon. For look, he has taken hold of the horns of the altar, saying, let King Solomon swear to me today that he will not put his servant to death by the sword, And then Solomon said, If he proves himself a worthy man, not one hair of him shall fall to the earth. But if wickedness is found in him, he shall die. And I love this. Um, Solomon learned this, I'm sure, from his father David. David was a very merciful man. And and Solomon here is being very merciful to Adonijah. But I will say that Solomon, as we get to know him a little bit better and as we see his character developing... Where David was a little bit more, I think, a little more compassionate, uh, Solomon is just like, he gives a little bit of rope, and then the rope is cut. And he gave Adonijah a little rope to, you know, to walk. And if he was decent and he wasn't trying to do anything uh, slippery, he would live. But if he was going to continue on this treachery, Solomon was going to kill him. And so... King Solomon, verse 53, sent him to bring him down from the altar. And he came and he fell down before King Solomon. And Solomon said to him, go to your, ho- go to your house. <laughs> That's all it said. Go to your house. In other words, you're going to live. I don't want to see or hear anything from you. I could kill you right now, but go to your house. That's all he said to him. And Adonijah knew right then. If I played by the rules and I didn't stick my nose where it shouldn't be, I'm going to live. 
And we'll look at more of that next week when we look at chapter 2. But I believe that Solomon knew this wasn't going to be the end of Adonijah. But you know, what an, what an interesting thing as we, uh, as we just stop here and you know, look at these things. You remember when the Lord told David and Nathan the prophet told him, God speaking, of course, through the prophet, that the sword would never depart from David's house that as a result of his sin, that there would be consequences. And, and we're starting to see, even now, the consequences. And we're going to see them come to even fruition in the next chapter. And it's kind of an unfortunate thing, but I, I, I come away with this, and I think, David, if you'd only just spoken up earlier, you could have avoided people dying. <laughs> you could have avoided this from happening, perhaps. I mean, maybe Adonijah, even if he knew that Solomon was going to be the king, maybe he would still attempt a coup like Absalom did. Maybe he would try to do that. But David just, he didn't, he, he didn't communicate that very well. And so I want to encourage you tonight. One of David's great character flaws, I think, was, was that very thing, just kind of being checked out as a dad. He was a great king, he was a great man, but he had flaws just like all of us. But, you know, let's learn from that and, and communicate well with your family members. Communicate well with those around you. Try not to leave things unspoken and, and things with a question mark. Make things obvious and open and let everybody know what's going on. I mean, that's what love does, doesn't it? I mean, sometimes you have to conceal a matter, but love is, you know, especially in a family, you know, just be open and be honest and speak when you can and while you can because you don't know when your time's up. Because when you don't, you create problems. You create lots of problems by not communicating. And one of the things I see in this is that David, this is just one of those things that he could have avoided. And so... Let's endeavor not to do that. Let's, let's be communicators. Let's not hide things and keep things in the shadows and keep question marks over people's heads. Yeah, it can be uncomfortable. But truth is always good. Truth always works. And being transparent is usually better than not. Amen? Let's stand and pray. Father, we just thank you for this time together. And Lord, we pray that we would learn from David's life. Lord, as we see these things. And Lord, just have your way with us. Lord, help us to be. Lord, I believe that you are the greatest communicator of all time. Lord, you're still communicating to us. You've given us your word. And Lord, you saw fit to make sure that it all came to us. And we have it all in our hands, and we have great assurance over it. And Lord, you've been speaking to our hearts. You speak to us through other people. Lord, you're a great communicator. You've told us things to come before they occur, that it would soothe us and encourage us. And Lord, I pray that we would learn from that, and that we would learn to be great communicators in the, in the, in the, area, in the, in the era, in this time that we live in, Lord, with all the deception around us. Lord, help us to be 
the exact opposite, Lord, to be so clear and precise and no shadows, no question marks. May we know where we stand with others and where others stand with us. Help us to be lovingly kind, but Lord, to be truthful even if it hurts sometimes. Help us not to back away. Lord, we just thank you and we thank you for this, this, uh, this passage. Open our hearts, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.